Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. We are in a time of extreme political turmoil, and regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, I think we can all agree that divisions in American life today run really deep. So, as we move forward, what can we learn from our past? Our guest today has written multiple books about significant political and cultural issues, and today we're going to focus on two of them and how they relate to our current state of political unrest. Timothy Snyder is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University, and he's also the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century and The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. Professor Timothy Snyder, welcome to Detroit Today. Very glad to be with you. So uh, the first thing I want to do is talk about your book on tyranny, which is about 20 lessons you think we ought to be able to look back at uh, in the 20th century and apply to the way we think of things here in the 21st century and especially how we deal with each other over those issues. Uh, How did you come to the conclusion that you could get your point across in these 20 succinct lessons? Well, it, it, it starts from the observation that we had decided that history was over. You know, that one of the great mistakes that Americans and others made after the revolutions of 1989, after the end of communism, was to say, well, nothing like that's ever going to happen again. Um, democracy is the natural order of things. But if you're a historian, you know that's not true. You know that democracy is exceptional and difficult and that you have to work for it. So the very simple premise of my book was to look back at the 20th century, at people who faced difficulties, and to remember the wise things that they learned from their own experiences. So that's it. The 20 lessons um, are, are not my wisdom. The 20 lessons come from people who experienced communism or Nazism um, and who, who left us with little bits of advice that can make our, put our problems in perspective, but also most importantly suggest practical things we can do um, which are likely to sustain the rule of law and democracy and also to make us feel better about ourselves along the way. Hmm. Uh, and there's such a wide range of ideas, I feel like, uh, among these 20 lessons, uh, f- starting with the very first one, do not obey in advance. I actually really love that one. Uh, another is stand out. Another is be kind to our language. Number 11 is investigate. 14 is establish a private life. Uh, This really covers the gamut of the way that we not only approach public life, uh, not only in this country, but in the world, but also the way that we conduct ourselves in private and the way that we conduct ourselves uh, with our families, for instance, and, and our loved ones. It's, it, yeah, this is because being being the citizen of a democracy is not something that can be left to processes beyond ourselves. You know, it's it's nice to think that there's somebody or something out there, you know, the economy, the institutions, the constitution, which is going to make the system work for us. But as soon as you have that thought, uh, you're contributing to the end of democracy in your own country. Mm. Democracy only works if there are a people and they want to rule. That's what democracy is, the rule ruled by the people. And in order to be the kind of person who belongs to the people, there are a whole set of things that you, you need to be thinking about and able to do. And you're right. Some of them are, are, are demanding, 
like standing out. It's it's hard to stand out. Um, that's the whole point of authoritarianism is that it's easy not to stand out. You know, the difficulty of democracy is that you have to stand out. You have to try to set some kind of an example. Otherwise, your principles don't mean anything. And then some of them are relatively easy or they seem easy, like making eye contact with other people, making sure that we have some kind of human contact or subscribing to newspapers, making sure that we're, we're, we're getting the good people who actually look for the facts about our country and the world paid um, by, by supporting what they do. Those, uh, those things may seem easy, but, a lot, but most of us aren't doing those things now. And when we don't do those things, relationships fall apart, relationships with one another and relationships with the outside world. And without those relationships, democracy starts to be hollow and, and, and meaningless. And we move in the direction that we're moving now. Mm. I, I want to talk specifically about two of the points on your 20-point list here. Uh, and, and I want to talk, with them, uh, talk about them in the context of our current political debate. Number two on your list is defend institutions. And number five on your list is remember professional ethics. Now, I, it's hard for me to imagine that those two don't apply really, really simply, in fact, to the current dialogue that we're having about politics in this country. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I have to have to agree with you there. <laughs> um, so, I mean, d- defend institutions, right? The, the, why is that so important? That's so important because none of us is perfect. The president's not perfect. The senators aren't perfect. Um, congressmen and women aren't, aren't, aren't perfect. Public servants aren't perfect. Businessmen and businesswomen aren't perfect. No citizen is perfect. And so we, the way that we sustain a, a civil society, the way that we sustain democratic institutions, the way that we sustain the law is that we have groups of us that operate according to legal rules, and those groups keep us honest, and those groups keep us in contact with one another, and those groups keep norms keep morality going over time, over generations. When those institutions go away, you know that you're headed towards something much worse. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an obvious marker of authoritarianism or totalitarianism when institutions that exist on paper cease to have meaning, right? So every, every country has a constitution, but some, in some places they matter more, in some places they matter less. Most countries have something like a Supreme Court, but in some countries they matter more, in some countries they, they, they matter less. Most countries have elections, in some countries they matter more, in some countries have, they matter less. And so we have to be able to have these things, realize their importance, and, and defend them, because if, we're all, if we all just become our isolated, opinionated, imperfect selves, then we lose the gains of the kind of system that we have. So that's why institutions matter. And and they matter because they make us better people. They make us less unwise. They make us less insensitive to others. They make us more attentive um, to how things have worked in the past. They give us a sense of, uh, of everyday right and wrong. Mr. Trump is not someone who has a lot of experience inside institutions. Um, his career has been one of running away from institutions mm-hmm. and, and from the law and from legal responsibility. And he brings to politics an entirely different set of norms. Um, he, he is someone who believes that politics is all about power and that power is all about relationships among people. And those are, those are, those are powerful ideas. Those are resonant ideas. Those are ideas that can be made to work. They just can't be made to work inside the kind of system that we're used to having. The whole point of, of institutions, of the Constitution, of checks and balances, is to get 
big personalities working in ways where all of us can can benefit and to avoid situations where everyone agrees that that politics is all about a person because the moment you think that it's all about a person and we're lurching you know whether we whether we like Mr. Trump or we don't we're lurching dangerously in that direction the moment you think politics is all about a person then you're back in a pre-democratic situation you're back in a world where law doesn't really matter anymore so defend institutions. Professional ethics is similar. I mean, it, belonging to a profession, you know, whether you're a, whether you're a veterinarian or, you know, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a lawyer, um, it, it, with, with that profession comes a sense of right and wrong, which is specific to, to your particular endeavor and which is usually codified in some way and which means that you're not just out there making money, you're not just out there thinking about yourself, that you're also embodying a certain view of, of, of how the world should be. And that, you know, starting from this negatively, when professional ethics goes away, then we find ourselves pushed around by the demands of the day, right? So it's, you, 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 this is going to sound dramatic, but it's true. If businessmen don't have professional ethics, then they will make money in concentration camps. If lawyers don't have professional ethics, they will take part in murderous occupation regimes. If physicians don't have professional ethics, they will carry out horrifying experiments. These are all things that we've seen in the past. Those are the negative examples. The positive examples are if you if you hold on to your sense of professional ethics, that means that you have something guiding you, something that can help you to resist a tiny bit when everything, which everything around you seems to be going wrong. And we do, we do see this now in, in the current political clash in the United States, because what, the way Mr. Trump argues everything is that everyone is just a selfish individual and they must have terrible motives for what they're doing, hmm. right? Whereas some of the people who are testifying before Congress would give a different account of their behavior. They would say, I'm doing this because I believe in the ethics of being a military officer, or I'm doing this because I believe in the ethics of being a diplomat, right? So again, there are two, there are two views of the world going on here. One says, we're all basically just selfish, mean individuals, and the most selfish and mean should be in charge. And another says, no, we belong to groups, we belong to professions, and with that comes a sense of loyalty and a sense of obligation um, and a sense of right and wrong that might be triggered in an extreme situation like mm. the one that we're passing through now. Mm. Let's start with Jim, who is listening from Charleston, South Carolina. Jim, welcome hey, to the good program. Hey, good morning. Hey, how are you? Good morning. Um, I think that one, of, one of the most fundamental important parts of a democracy is, is a, a multitude of people working together to come to the best solution for all citizens. I really uh, I think the two party system is so broken. I don't know that it could be repaired. I would every every issue now is a zero sum game. If the Republicans win, the Democrats lose and vice versa. I think the turning point was the, the Gingrich Congress. I think from that point forward, the Cong Democrat Republican Party really, by and large, would not see compromise. I was living in D.C. at that time and really witnessed it firsthand. The, the whole atmosphere changed so incredibly dramatically. Hmm. So my proposition, I don't know that Americans are capable of a parliamentary system where we have um, like fractional minority parties and you build a coalition. But what I would suggest, I, I don't know that this is possible, but if we could just completely get, a, get, a, uh, get rid of uh, political parties hmm. where everybody runs as an individual, Democrat, Republican, whatever, and we elect congressional representatives and our senators based upon who's going to represent our interests and our ideology the best. And then we get a Congress, you'd be able to have moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans again. You wouldn't have to have these extreme uh, 
extremists that really guide and lead the party. So I guess my suggestion would be, mm. uh, I don't know if it's possible. I think that 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 might be a solution. I don't think we can fix the two-party system. Yeah, I think uh, it's broken, and I don't think it's going back. Jim, that's a really that's a really fascinating observation. Uh, you have something in common with uh, the founders of this country who also were quite skeptical of what they called factions uh, and w- tried to design the system uh, in a way that they thought would discourage that kind of play, uh, that, that, that kind of uh, political play in, in, in this country. Of course, it turned out quite differently. Uh, and we do have the two-party system that really has has dominated our politics for most of the time the country has existed. Timothy Snyder, I wonder if you have contemplated that uh, suggestion as perhaps a way to to improve the way that we talk about division. So let me let me for once try to be a little bit less radical than than the caller. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can I can imagine I, I can imagine that, but between us and that, there are a lot of intermediate steps. And I want to I suggest three things that could make the party system as it is um, much, much better. And I want to start with a, I want to start with a concept that, that Jim introduced, which is representation. I mean, there are reasons why the parties don't represent people. Uh, and they all have to do with the, the primacy of national politics over local politics. So one of them would be gerrymandering. In the House of Representatives, all of our districts are gerrymandered um, so that the national party can win. Mm-hmm. When gerrymandering is done, there is no thought to the representation of the people in these districts. It's all about tactics, and since it's all about tactics, you're not listening to what you're not listening to what people need. You're just looking at how you can carve up sure seats, and that leads to the situation partly that that that, that Jim's talking about, namely that people don't talk to each other because they don't have to, right? You don't if you're if you're in a safe district, you don't have to talk to your constituents, and your constituents don't have to talk to another. Another national problem is money in politics. Um, you know, especially since Citizens United. We are in a game where anyone anywhere in the country can inject money anywhere else in the country in a local race where they don't have you know, any local inter- issues in mind. They don't have the constituents in mind. They just have in mind some larger national issue. And that makes politics national, right, for better or worse, mostly for worse. And it, but it, what it mainly means is that the voices of the people in that congressional district or in that state are not really what matters. What matters is some larger national debate, which probably isn't the most important thing in their lives. Mm. And the third thing I would stress here, um, uh, bearing on this point, is the, the death of local news. Because we don't have local, basically, we don't have local news in this country anymore in the sense of print newspapers that appear daily. A lot of people across a lot of the country don't have access to that anymore. Mm. That makes the issues all seem national. Um, and that means we're fighting with each other about these about these polarizing things that are thousands of miles away and maybe not the most important thing in our lives. Maybe the school board or maybe water pollution is the most important thing in our lives. So we don't see it because we don't have local news. Mm. Without local news, people can't, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they can't find the local things that they can actually talk about. And they drift into these big national discussions, um, which which then do tend to, to be polarizing and, and zero-sum games. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, uh, Jim, I really appreciate 
appreciate the call and the comments. And again, also thanks for listening from Charleston, South Carolina. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more of our conversation right here on Detroit Today. Stay tuned. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've tuned in. Uh, my guest is Timothy Snyder. He's the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He's also the author of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. We're talking about the way we talk about the things that divide us in the 21st century and how we might think differently about those things, how we might approach those divisions differently. Uh, Timothy Snyder says in uh, his book, um, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, that we ought to look back to the 20th century as a way of understanding how to move forward in the 21st century. Uh, Let's go to Jimmy in Birmingham. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephen. Great show, like always. Thanks. Uh, so three things that, as a parent, I'm trying to teach my kids that, frankly, <laughs> I think folks in, in the political landscape could definitely take a lesson from. One is, and the first is, there's only one thing in life you can control. One thing, and that's you. Hmm. The moment that you step outside of something you can control, you're out of control. And so to remember that the only thing you can control is yourself. The second thing is to always assume positive intent. If you have any uh, feeling of frustration or anger towards someone, but you haven't fully given them the benefit of the doubt and assumed positive intent, then you're just not off on the right foot. And uh, the third is to really seek understanding before you seek to be understood, to really make an effort to say, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I understand your point of view, what you're trying to say, blah, 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 before, and maybe ever before I am understood. Um, So those are the three things that I'm teaching my kids that, frankly, I think the folks in the political landscape could could really, and and frankly, we could all benefit from. Jimmy, uh, those are both... Uh, really great, really great pieces pieces of advice, uh, Timothy Snyder. Uh, th- those those pieces of advice kind of dovetail with some of the points on your on your list of twenty things we ought to we ought to think about. I'm also really interested though in your thoughts about how we pass these things on to our children uh, as a way of making sure that they understand how to deal with one another. 
Yeah, I love. I, I, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna send my kids to Jimmy's house for the next <laughs> several months because I think he's clearly doing a better job than than, than I am. And I think it, it's ter- like it's terrific how we can expect things. I mean, I thought you know this, this is a great call because it's terrific how we can expect things of children that we that, that we don't see in adults, right? I mean, part of like part of raising children is is about hope, not just that the future will be better, but that like our children will actually turn out um, in a way that we can admire, and that's definitely beautiful about that. Uh, in 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 terms of you know in in terms of how we how we make people more more, more civil, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a step back and point to some of the structural things which make which make it hard. W- one of them, um, the basic one, is that human contact requires human skills. I mean, this is, I'm kind of summarizing the way Jimmy's point, that if um, if you want people to be civil with other people, you have to make sure they're actually interacting with other people. Hmm. And in a country where the average person spends 11 hours a day in front of a screen, it can be hard for those skills to be developed. So looking at the situation more structurally, I think we have to be, we have to be concerned about how our, where our children spend their time at home, but also where they spend their time at schools. I think it's a mistake for screens to make their way into schools. I, I notice that the people who invented those devices don't let their own children use them. I noticed that in Silicon Valley, um, the, the people who work there send their kids to school, schools where there are no screens. So it may seem, you know, unrelated at first, but I think they understand that when we put screens in front of the faces of our kids, we're, we're, we're making sure that our kids aren't making eye contact with other kids. And we're also putting them in a world um, where the quick hit, you know, the, the quick burst of emotion, the quick gratification is, is, the, thing that, is the thing that really matters. So that's, that's a structural thing, and it, it, it relates directly to politics. You know, one of the reasons why our politics has gotten less civil in the last 10 years is social media. Um, that what social media basically does to us is turns us into people who expect to hear the things that we expect to hear and who learn to be, who learn to be outraged. And this goes directly to Jimmy's point, who learn to think that people who say something which we don't agree with are not just um, other people, but our enemies, because how can they possibly think that thing, which, which we don't think. And so then we get a generation of politicians, and I'm afraid Mr. Trump is among them, who basically ride on this, who are in some sense just serving these algorithms, um, who do the things that social media does, but in, but in real life. So that's a little bit that I'd add. Yeah. Let's go to Sean quickly in Gross Point. Sean, what's on your mind? Hi. Hi. I uh, appreciate the conversation quite a bit. Uh, the discussion you had about ethics I thought was really interesting. That prompted me to think, uh, you know, as an attorney, I have kind of, when people say, well, you know, what is the cause for, you know, this Trump phenomena? I always say blame the attorneys. Hmm. And part of the reason is because, you know, the attorneys, attorney ethics have become kind of amoral. It's become about winning. It has become about, um, you know, uh, people wanted to have an advocate in the presidency who maybe didn't care about the ends, but just was going to win for them. And that permeated our law and our legal system to a great extent. And I think that this is a phenomenon that has developed in our recent years, the, the concept of an amoral advocate hmm. uh, and the loss of the ethic that uh, people had of subsidiarity, which was you, you can't hire someone to do something for you, even if it's for a moral end. You can't hire someone who's going to use amoral or immoral means to get there. And I think we've lost that connection. And uh, so I, I think we need to get back to, uh, fixing the legal system in a way that 
uh, you know, there is concern about the ends of what we're doing, not just blanket rules about the procedure of how you get there, but wow. concern about the end. Yeah. And- Sean, I, I, I definitely appreciate that point. I think that's a really incisive point in this conversation. Uh, Timothy Snyder, I, I think that that's a good sort of jumping off point to discuss at least briefly your second book that we wanted to talk about, The Road to Unfreedom, which is about the current rise in authoritarianism, uh, populism, nationalism, these things that are pushing us back toward uh, darker darker times. Uh, Sean's point about the amoral advocate, uh, I think, fits into the context of that discussion. Oh, it certainly does, because one of the big, big things which is at stake is whether whether law actually matters or whether law is a joke. And we can see ourselves hovering, I mean, over, over, over that. And it could go, I'm afraid it could go either way in this country. W- what I'm arguing in the road to unfreedom is that in, in Russia, they have managed to stabilize a situation of extreme wealth inequality where the law only really serves uh, the people who have the money. I mean, a few people at the very, very top and otherwise uh, the legal situation is entirely inappropriate, is entirely unpredictable, and basically, it's all the situation that Sean is describing, where the, the law just serves individuals and their interests. There's no, there's no underlying ethic that's that's apparent at all, and. What Russia has been able to do has been to export this kind of thinking, you know, that law is a joke and that everything's a joke, really. Democracy is a joke. The truth is a joke. You know, nothing really matters. And therefore, there's no reason to, to defend your own democracies. Just let our fiction and our indifference and our nihilism, you know, sink into you. And that's that's the little thing which they added to our own problems in, in 2016 and helped us to get where we are. And, you know, it's a little bit of it's a, it's a nudge from them in this direction. But more importantly, it shows us what can happen when the situation Sean describes reaches its extreme, where everybody just thinks the law isn't there. But lawyers are just an element of power. They're just henchmen. You know, they just help you find your way around things. Right. They're not they don't actually represent anything positive. They're only they're kind of they're just negative actors who help who help the rich and powerful find ways to outsmart everybody else. And I, I, I just couldn't agree more with the comment because it seems like this is this is a case where, you know, you have to stand by the little things like professional ethics. Mm. Timothy Snyder, Richard C. Levin, professor of history at Yale University. It was really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. And I hope that we'll be able to invite you back for more discussion like this in the future. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for preparing for all this. And, and thanks for the conversation with your callers. Sure. Coming up, we'll meet the artist who recently completed Detroit's 100th City Commission mural. Wally Johnson joins me next on Detroit Today to talk about his work and about the ethos of public art in a city like Detroit.
WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. Listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you spend any time driving around the city of Detroit these days, you cannot help but notice some new artwork all around town. The Duggan Administration City Walls Program was created back in 2017 to enhance public spaces, and now it's reached a big milestone. The project just put up its 100th mural here in the city, and it is a really striking piece of public art. The Spirit is a six-story mural that depicts a black woman holding the gold sun and spires of our famous Spirit of Detroit statue with the city's flag worn as a head wrap. I have to say, when I first saw this image, it really, really caught my attention. There is so much going on in that image, not only the image itself and the obvious beauty that it has, but the messages that I think are baked into those images and the way that they're put together. The artist is a young muralist and portrait artist from right here in Detroit. Wally Johnson is a software engineer by day who has been commissioned to create oil paintings and murals in galleries and on walls in places including Chicago, Lansing, and of course, right here in his hometown of Detroit. Wally Johnson joins me now to talk about his work, The Spirit, and his take on the power of public art. Waleed, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much, Stephen, for having me. Yeah, it's really great to have you here. I, I've wanted to talk to you about this since I saw that mural <laughs> the first time. <laughs> so let's start here. What inspired this piece that you titled The Spirit? You know, this was a really interesting piece because the development was over kind of over the course of a couple of years. Like I actually took this picture of my friend back in 2017 and um, I had something in mind and that project kind of fell through. But I was like, this is a really great photo and uh, I'm going to use it for something. But I didn't, just didn't know uh, what it would be at that time. And then I got into the City Walls program and, um, you know, my fiance actually suggested like, she's like, you should paint this wall, like this giant wall there. And so I reached out to the building owner and then um, immediately when I started brainstorming, this image came back to my mind. I was like, this could be, this is like a really hopeful image uh, and on a large scale, it could be really powerful. Uh, but she actually had a different head wrap on and it was just kind of the face. And so I started trying to work with the little sketching and then my fiance was like, you should make the head wrap uh, the Detroit flag. And I was like, that's it. Like once I got that, then it all like the story I was trying to tell just like came together. I started thinking about the spirit of Detroit Then I added the hands in and um, yeah, it just, I, that was a really fantastic suggestion. And that kind of um, uh, led me in the direction that I, I ended up in. Yeah. It, well, one of the things that it does for me is kind of, I, I think, put that stamp of black Detroit on the image 
that we all associate with the city in the first place, which is, of course, the Spirit of Detroit statue. It really recasts the idea of what the spirit of the city is to a more modern take. This is a city uh, that is 85% African-American. It is the blackest city in North America, is what uh, a lot of us say. Uh, this this really uh, marries the idea of who is Detroit with the idea of what is Detroit. Exactly. And that's, that's so important to me because um, I was raised by a single Black woman, and I've seen many uh, Black women in the city keeping it alive. And so... I think to really represent that, um, yeah, like you said, it's like a new take on this symbol that we might not associate with um, uh, necessarily with Black people. Uh, so, yeah, I was really excited for that. And I think it was needed uh, because, you know, so many people came up to me and they're like, oh, is this Rosa Parks or is this like someone famous? And I'm like, no. And it just it shows like people are not especially black people are not used to being represented uh, in such a like um, uh, a big way like that. And mm -hmm. so uh, I think that is really important to, to show people like, you know, everyday ordinary people can be represented in this manner. You don't have to be someone famous. And um, yeah, I think it's just, it's been, um, it had more effect than I even thought initially. Hmm. So I, I, I want to talk a little about public art and its ability to affect communities. You've talked in the past about how you believe public art has a real effect on, on where we live and how we live. Explain your thoughts on that and what effect you hope this mural might have. Yeah, so I think one good example is like even you know, even if you don't necessarily uh, like think like, okay, you know, this this piece is uh, like influencing me in some way, it can like influence you subconsciously or just when you're you know driving by you might not think about it now but like when I was younger there was this mural um on Gratiot called the African Amalgamation of Ubiquity mm -hmm. and um it depicted you know uh uh black people in Africa and then here in the states and it ended with like Coleman Young in Detroit and um I didn't really know how much that impacted me I just knew yeah I, I liked it but then once it got into a state of disrepair and then mm -hmm. ultimately torn down, I felt like a piece of me was gone or something. I was like, what? Like, you know, I did not know that it impacted me that way. So I feel like um, that's the the power of public art. And also, of course, to, to beautify the neighborhood and um, just seeing, um, bringing something different, I feel like, to the neighborhood because, you know, there's not... Um, uh, depending on where you are in the city, there may not be a lot of um, art uh, on that scale mm -hmm. and just accessible to the community. Um, something like, uh, you know, they don't have to go to the DIA or another museum now. They can see this art in their community. And um, I think that that's really powerful and it can become something that, um, yeah, is like a important part of the neighborhood or kind of brings out the soul of the neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said in the open, you work as a software engineer, but but you also have this uh, obviously incredible talent and and interest in in art. Uh, what are your goals for this kind of work, I guess, uh, for yourself and, and for the city? 
Um, so honestly, I, I really love to travel and it would be a dream if I could like kind of combine uh, the love for art and travel. Um, this year I got to go to Lansing and then I also and do a piece there and I also did a piece in West Virginia, which is really cool. And uh, that is in part due to the flexibility of my, my software job. I can work remotely from anywhere, but um, I would really love to, to combine those two. Like if I can, um, I, I just feel like it's something interesting about like um, doing murals in different places. It's kind of like a cultural exchange in a way. Like I get to learn about them. I get to talk with them, uh, the people of that community, and then uh, gift them something that hopefully uh, they really like and uh, becomes a part of their community. Um, so that's, um, uh, that would be something that I would love to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we have to end the show, uh, tell people where they might be able to find prints of uh, this mural or, or, or your other work. Oh, yes. People can find prints of my mural on uh, my website, which is waleedjohnson.com, W-A-L-E-E-D-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. Um, yeah, and there are uh, pictures of my other work as well if you want to view uh, past murals and oil paintings. And, of course, on Instagram as well. Um, and, and my Instagram handle is Walid underscore the underscore artist, and that is uh, the most up-to-date thing. Okay, well, congratulations on uh, this mural and and congratulations on it being the 100th City Commission mural here in the city. That's such a big deal and it was really great to have you here. We wish you all, all the luck in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation.